This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Once again, if you're just joining us in the boarding area for flight 751 to Cancun, we will begin boarding shortly. We'll also be using a new self-boarding process today, which takes a quick face scan and securely matches it to your passport photo. We may not be traveling much at the moment, but once life returns to some semblance of normal and cross-border travel resumes as before, facial recognition technologies are likely to become an increasingly bigger part of the journey. Scans for boarding passes, security clearance, customs review, and baggage pickup are just some of the spots where your face could become the source of screening and your pathway forward. Tamir Israel, staff lawyer at CIPIC, the Samuelson Glushko Canadian Internet Policy and Public Interest Clinic at the University of Ottawa, recently completed a major study on the use of facial recognition technologies at the border. I was a founder of CIPIC and serve as an advisor, but played no role in the report. Tamir joins me on the podcast to discuss the current use of the technologies, how they are likely to become even more ubiquitous in the future, and the state of Canadian law to ensure appropriate safeguards and privacy protections. Tamir, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, I'm glad you've joined. We've known each other for a long time. I've obviously been involved with CIPIC for a long time, uh, although I didn't have involvement in this particular report, but I think it's it's an incredibly important one. I'm really glad that we have the chance to talk a bit about it. Now, as you know, face facial recognition technologies emerged as a, as a big policy issue this year. Earlier this year in the spring, I spoke to Nazma Ahmed about it in the context of its use by police departments, where there's been certainly a lot of attention. Uh, but you've written, I think, what's truly a remarkably comprehensive report on the use of facial recognition technologies in a context that when we're not in the midst of a global pandemic, I think directly impacts millions of people every day, uh, mainly the, the use of this technology at the border. Why don't we start then with some of the basics? Uh, how prevalent is facial recognition technologies at the border, particularly, say, airports? Uh, and in even more particularly, how prevalent do we find it in Canada? Uh, yeah, so thanks again for having me on and to talk about this. I think it is an important issue. Um, again, uh, slightly put on hold uh, thanks to the pandemic, uh, due to the pandemic and to travel slowing down in general. But um, uh, before the pandemic did hit, uh, we were, we've were we been seeing in the last two or three years in particular just a massive uh, push at adoption um, that's been transforming airports uh, around the world. It started with a, a number of pilot programs in the last, uh, in the maybe two or three years back, and in the last year in particular, we're really seeing uh, a more aggressive kind of ramping up. There's a couple of drivers for this this, this more recent shift. Obviously, facial recognition has been around for a while, but um, uh, in the last few years, there has been a push to increase the efficiency of traveler processing. There's also uh, people who are leading this adoption have been pointing to the fact that some consider it to be a more socially accepted way of doing biometric uh, processing. Uh, fingerprints, for example, uh, fingerprinting has been a little bit more controversial historically, and there's been challenges getting that adopted as a biometric of choice in border contexts. But there's also a technological factor. So the, tech, the technology has uh, improved substantially. It's still not uh, ideal, but it has improved substantially in the last few years. So it's gotten to the point where, it's, uh, where the technology is able to provide 
uh, a new level of uh, efficiency at the border, um, or at least it's, it's hoped to provide a new level of efficiency at the border um, while still having some uh, accuracy challenges. And at the same time, it's become cheaper, and the cameras that are necessary to facilitate facial recognition have become cheaper. And there's also a broader push for automation in general of uh, various types of border processes, and, and facial recognition is integral to facilitating that. So all these drivers are, are, are leading to a uh, vast adoption uh, at borders around the world. Um, in Canada, we're, I would say, at the adoption trajectory that we're seeing elsewhere around the world. So far, we've adopted what are what I consider kind of entry-level border-based facial recognition systems um, in the last two years, and then we're piloting a few uh, additional ones that I can talk about in a bit, a bit more depth maybe later on. But it's not likely to stop where it is right now. Um, there is, for example, a, uh, a coalition of private and public sector bodies, uh, entities called the Future Borders Coalition. Uh, Vice, Vice did some interesting reporting on this a little while ago. And uh, this, is the, this, this group has come together to uh, basically bypass historical uh, uh, public adoption governance processes to uh, create a partnership that's designed to encourage the adoption of facial recognition systems and other transformative border technologies. Their ultimate objective is to basically replace your passport with your face so that you're, you won't need a travel document anymore. You'll just kind of uh, walk through and get scanned at various points in, the, in your transition through a border crossing, and uh, your face will be your passport in effect. And that's, that's probably like a slightly longer-term trajectory, but we're, um, but we're already seeing that level of uh, the push for that, uh, that being implemented in some airports around the world. Okay, so there's a lot happening, uh, and clearly there's a bit of a spectrum in terms of where the technology is and the kind of adoption that we're seeing. You mentioned everything from, at least in some circumstances, literally your face is your passport to others, whether it's more on a pilot project basis. Can you talk a bit more about, at least, let's say, in Canada or in North America, a bit more about the technology itself? How is it being deployed? What is it capturing? Uh, I'm assuming it's capturing, obviously, your face, but uh, how does it typically function uh, where someone listening to this might might encounter this kind of technology? Sure. So there's a broad range of uh, implementations. And at their most basic, uh, facial recognition, in the border in particular, uh, basically emulates the, the manual facial matching that occurs, uh, that's always occurred at the border, right? So we're all accustomed to showing, the airport is a unique context. It's a bit more um, uh, intrusive than other contexts. We're all, we all know that. We all recognize that when you're crossing a border, right, the um, the state has, uh, the, you know, is, is, we always get our identification checked, you know, our background checked. This is common for, for crossing borders. Um, and at their most basic facial recognition technologies basically emulate those manual tasks. Even there, there can be problems injected into the process, but I'll just give a few examples for context. So uh, one, one system that the UK adopted, and I'm going beyond North America here, I hope I get the license to do that, um, was a, an online uh, passport application process, right? So you submit your image and all your details online to apply for a passport, so you don't have to mail, um, mail, uh, mail everything in, and that's a very useful thing. And, uh, uh, there was a facial analytic process that was incorporated into that that would check the quality of images um, and then reject the ones that don't meet specifications. Um, so that's like a very, very, very basic uh, border control implementation. Uh, <clears throat> one step up from that is the we have these um, 
these kiosks in Canada uh, and, and other places that are basically um, uh, use a stop and look approach where you walk up to the kiosk and you enter you know, some customs and immigration information and you pose for a picture uh, and then um, an automated facial recognition comparison happens and if you pass it, if it matches your, and basically what that, that process is doing is it's, it's grabbing a biometric template that's encoded on your passport uh, and taking a picture of you and comparing the two. And if you, if the two successfully are matched, then you, uh, a little receipt is printed out and you show this to a border guard and you go about your day. And if not, then you have to go to a, a, a maybe a different border control guard and get your passport manually verified. So, and that's, that's what we've seen kind of most prevalently adopted in the last year and a half at Canadian airports. A step up from that is a more transformative iteration of uh, facial recognition that we're seeing at some U.S. airports as well as their other airports around the world. Um, and this uses a, a facial recognition at a distance technology. So here, uh, whereas in the, the, the fixed kiosk, you're basically posing for a picture and then you're providing your the digital image encoded on your passport to the device to compare the two. Um, um, the at-a-distance implementations are a bit different. Uh, there's a camera that uh, will be part of um, either um, some sort of automated or physical in airport infrastructure. So if it be an automated baggage drop-off, drop uh, a physical gate that you won't be able to pass until you've been uh, matched. Or um, there's also triage systems where you walk up and it'll I, you know, it'll do the facial recognition task, figure out who you are, and tell you which of like which of uh, progressively more screening paths you you physically will walk down, and it will physically um, direct you to the one that you that's been chosen for you. The video camera will film you as you walk up, isolate your face, match it against a pre-created database of millions of images, everyone's image usually, um, if it's in the airport context, so like all citizens who have passports. Um, and many foreign citizens as well, figure out who you are, and then uh, decide based on that and any profile information that's attached to it how to process you. The, the two other uh, implementations that we're seeing at various airports, I should say, are um, there's also screening systems that are being adopted, and one of these was uh, piloted by Canada Border Services a few years back. I don't know. I don't know if this is one they're immediately following up on, but it was piloted at least, where cameras are mounted in uh, border-controlled areas, like CBC-controlled areas, and uh, there's a pre-populated uh, pre list, uh, biometrically enabled list of uh, people who are of interest or for whatever reason, for you know public safety or other reasons. And everyone who walks through that area is is scanned, and anyone who matches the list gets pulled aside for additional questioning. Uh, and the last one is um, there's just a general, uh, some airports are just being generally transformed into uh, facial recognition enabled systems where thousands of sensors are being put up at all points across the, the, the airport, some by airlines, some by the airport, uh, people, airport authority itself, some by border control officials, and they're all integrated. And, and are basically providing a very comprehensive view of everyone, what everyone's doing as they're traversing the airport uh, or the port of entry and exit in a way that's even probably uh, fairly extensive in terms of tracking where, what individuals are doing, even in the airport context. Okay, that's a well. Thank you for that. that that's a pretty broad spectrum of, of different kinds of implementations. I can recall from my own experience back in the days when we were 
traveling, uh, experiencing the kiosk model that you just described very often, going into the kiosk, inserting my passport, having it take a picture, and then being given that slip of paper. And uh, it certainly was efficient and uh, allowed for pretty speedy processing relative to some of the other approaches. That's a, a, a certainly a far cry from some of the other kinds of implementations you've described where there are cameras and sensors all over the place. It seems to me that whenever there's a discussion around facial recognition technologies, the, the conversation invariably goes to the effectiveness of the technology, and in particular, worries around mistakes, uh, either what are described as false positives or false negatives. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between false positives and false negatives, uh, and then to the extent to which we know, uh, how often does this arise in the context of these kinds of technologies within airports? The nature of the error, I think, is very critical to assessing how this technology is going to be impacting travelers, um, as well as the context in which it's being used. So take those, uh, the kiosks that you were mentioning, right? The type of impact that facial recognition will have uh, when it fails is going to be very dependent on the type of the error that occurs and also the specific context in which it's being implemented. Um, errors will occur, first of all. Uh, we are at an interesting point in the development of this technology, uh, as I was saying in the opening. It's reached a level of uh, accuracy that makes it useful for governments to implement and Air Force to implement, uh, but it still has persistent accuracy challenges. It's not as accurate as uh, uh, fingerprinting and other types of biometrics. So you're still going to get general in uh, accuracy rate. Part of the challenge here is that if you're applying facial recognition to every traveler, even an error rate of like, of say, one or two percent, it's still going to lead to thousands of errors per day, right? Um, so, um, but, but uh, taking a step back for a sec, there are two types of, uh, fundamentally two types of errors. One is a false negative where a facial recognition system fails to match you against your photo. So taking our kiosk example from before, um, if you present your passport to the kiosk and it takes your picture and it is your passport and it is your, your face and everything should be matching, uh, maybe two, maybe one or 2% of travelers uh, will get erroneous. Uh, the system will fail to match those images even though they should match. Um, the other type of error is a false positive. If the system is trying to match your face against a list of you know, uh, 10 million travelers to figure out who you are or against a list of uh, predetermined list of potential of people who are of interest to the government, who they're looking for and screening for at airports for whatever reason, a false positive would be that uh, the system er um, erroneously matches your face to one of those images, even though that's not who you are. So those are the two types of errors. And then the implications there are you, you, know, you get a lot of questions. Um, you might, you know, you might get to the point where um, you're able to discourage, you know, to displace the any suspicion that arises from that type of false match or false negatives. We've seen in many contexts that there is often um, confidence develops in these systems, and it's often very difficult actually to fully displace some of these false positives and false negatives when they occur. Um, in particular, one challenge with the false negative. So. You know, for you or me, if I go to a kiosk or I try to apply to a passport, uh, to submit a passport application online, and uh, it is my face, and I know it's me, and I know I took the picture correctly, but the facial analytic or facial recognition task fails, um, that's inconvenient for me, and, and it's not great, and maybe I need to take a few extra minutes, and it takes a bit longer for me to get processed. But one of the biggest challenges with facial recognition systems, in, uh, in, especially when they're applied to populations writ large in this way, is that it's not just that there's an error rate that's, you know, say at the one, for one to, you know, one to two 
uh, percent uh, rate um, on the ground, but also the racial biases in the technology. It's been demonstrated by many, many, in many contexts now that these systems have a hard time matching people from particular um, demographics. Uh, women are, are more challenging across the board. But in particular, though, uh, people with darker skin tones are, are challenging for this technology still. So that means that that error rate is going to be very unevenly distributed among uh, different type, different demographic groups. And that, that, that racial bias, I think, is really problematic especially when it's being applied systemically to all travelers. So the UK passport submission, online passport submission process that I mentioned is a very basic task, but uh, that was shown to be um, to be racially biased and to reject uh, people, uh, uh, images, passport images, submissions from individuals with darker skin tones at a much higher, uh, substantially higher rate than everyone else. I think that creates a problem of its own that needs to be grappled with, in particular because the, the this creating this uh, efficiency that some particular demographic groups are locked out of is pro is is not a fair way I think of managing border uh, border control processes. Um, in particular, uh, if you look at the trajectory of where some of these uh, border control implications are going, where every single step in the border control process is then is envisioned as having a facial recognition component that you can't progress past without passing a facial recognition uh, comparison. False negative, and particularly the racial bias rates that are persistent in a lot of these a lot of these recognition algorithms, uh, I think are deeply can transform a, a fairly straightforward um, uh, and not inherently intrusive process, maybe uh, of comparing someone's passport at a kiosk into something that's a little bit more problematic systemically. Can you describe some of the potential harms that, that are likely to arise from either the false positives or the false negatives? Immigration screening can have wide implications as well if people are, uh, uh, it's, it's an area where um, other types of biometrics, the inability to match uh, someone to their fingerprints, for example, in, in, in Europe has led to um, documented challenges for immigrations and people for immigration and people make, uh, advancing asylum claims, where it becomes very difficult to dis, to dispute that type of automated match error because it's just beyond the means of individuals to do it, and because the matching process instills so much confidence in the in the border officials and other entities that are assessing it. You've highlighted some real risks and, and obviously some, some harms that, that can occur and, are, as you've mentioned, not evenly distributed in terms of uh, who, may, who may suffer some of those harms. You earlier mentioned that there have been some pilot projects launched in Canada. Uh, I know, for, one, for instance, you, in your report, you talk a bit about creating trusted rating profiles. Can you talk a bit about some of the programs that we do know about uh, that have been launched in Canada, even if only on a pilot basis? Yeah, absolutely. So one, uh, this is a fairly cutting-edge uh, proposal that's been uh, advanced by the World Economic Forum and is looking at uh, creating what's basically a, uh, a digital facially recognition-enabled profile that would sit on, on travelers' phones. Uh, and Canada and the Netherlands have taken the lead in piloting this program, but uh, that was in the lead into the pandemic, so we don't know where things are at exactly now. 
it's a voluntary program, first of all, I should say, right? So, um, and I think that's an important uh, component to assessing it. But voluntary is a bit of a uh, two-edged sword in this context, which I'll just get into in, in, in a bit. But um, this voluntary program would work so that you would, uh, would start off by you uh, registering for the program, and you get your picture taken, and you create a biometrically enabled profile, and they verify that manually that it matches your passport, and they create this profile on your phone. And then the next time you come through the airport, you'll be able to um, uh, basically through the phone, allow a border official to access both your facial recognition template, which will be accessible through the phone, as well as a, a, a trust, what's essentially a trust score, which is a score that's compiled through your interactions with, um, with other border officials, uh, maybe even with banks, with academic institutions. You will be prompted to populate this profile with additional information like credit ratings to increase your trust score. And basically, if you build a substantially robust enough level of trust in this profile that you create on your phone, um, you'll be able to access uh, faster processing at the airport. And facial recognition is the, uh, tech, the central binding technology here that allows border officials to, to uh, uh, you know, confidently match your, uh, know that the profile on your phone is in fact yours because the, your facial recognition template will be embedded in the, uh, in, in the, in, into that profile. Um, now, the voluntary element of this, I just wanted to talk about a little bit. Um, so it is an opt-in program, but I think this is a, a, a bit of a, as I was saying, a two-edged sword at the border in particular, because the border is this intensely coercive space that where, where, where all legally we can be subjected to a much more inconvenience and much more privacy invasion than we can in other spots. So um, these types of programs, uh, when, you know, they, they, they can be very compelling, uh, and they people will often um, opt into them because they do provide a compelling, if, you know, compelling way around long border waits. But this program is explicitly envisioned um, to once it once it gets developed at the border, it's explicitly envisioned that the program will uh, will will have applications beyond. So for um, you know, private sector identity, digital identity management, and you know, maybe maybe these profiles will um, become first, you know, voluntarily requested and later, uh, you know, uh, more more robustly encouraged when you want to open a new tele uh, account with a telecommunication company, like a new internet account, for example, or a new bank account. Um, and this is explicitly, you know, this this um, this leveraging the border context to encourage a voluntary adoption of this digital profile. Uh, um, and then later repurpose it for these other reasons is explicitly built in the World Economic Forum template for this. And we've seen similar repurposing in other contexts. For example, Australia is in the process of attempting to repurpose its border control uh, facial recognition system to let you know banks and telecommunication companies start using facial recognition um, just as a way of confirming identities in general. So here, uh, like we're starting to see, um, you know, it starts with you know your faces, your passport at the border. But with programs like this, some voluntary, some more legal, like what we're seeing in Australia. Um, it's really becoming your face is just your identity everywhere. <laughs> and I think that that's why I think it's important, even though we're kind of early on in the process on down on this road in Canada and we're just maybe piloting some more, maybe more problematic programs. Uh, I think now is the time to really have the conversation before it fully, fully takes hold. And it's difficult to start thinking then about what safeguards need to be in place. 
Yeah, no, I think that's a fair point. And, and you know, obviously, the report does a good job of, of putting the, the technology on the table and how this is moving us down a, a particular path and that we as a society at least ought to have a conversation about what we're comfortable with. Part of that conversation, I would have thought, also begs the question about legal protections and safeguards. And so uh, where does Canadian law stand on this issue? What kind of legal protections do we have right now? I think our toolkit is inadequate. Uh, there's a couple of uh, uh, challenges here um, that uh, with this particular technology, uh, some of this is uh, a broader ish problem with how we uh, regulate technology in general, but there are definitely some facial recognition specific challenges that come up here. The, the central privacy protection that we have legislatively at the federal level that governs this type of activity is the Privacy Act. You know, this is a law that was passed in the 80s, early 80s, and, you know, has not been meaningfully updated since. And we've seen massive shifts in how, um, you know, how uh, technology operates and how the government governments use technology since then. And I think everybody recognizes that this law is outdated and requires an update, but um, it, it hasn't happened. So I think that's one gap. And, and the implications of that for facial recognition technology is that it's difficult to get clear answers and public transparency even on what the error rates are. There was one study where um, freedom of information requests were used to access error rates for those kiosks, but it was a very confined data set. And even in response to that study and the follow-up uh, interviews that came out, our, our border control agency refused to provide more details on racial bias, even though it seemed that they were aware that there might be issues. So there, there's a, there's a, and there's no way to compel that um, other than, um, you know, attempting to do iterative access to information requests. Um, but there's also um, no framework for requiring, you know, proportionate and, um, and careful adoption of this technology, you know, the least, I would say that, you know, the, the, the systems that we have, the kiosks are probably are, are on the least, less intrusive range, right? There's no legal protection that would have prevented a more intrusive iteration of that from being adopted, just because, the, again, our, our, our legal regime here is outdated. You've mentioned some of the some of the legislative rules from a privacy perspective. Are there AI-specific concerns that arise in the, in this context from a, a legal perspective? There are also uh, broader AI decision-making challenges, which at the border is a, is a very, facial recognition is a type of AI, right? So, um, and it's also a, a vehicle to the adoption of a lot of other uh, artificial intelligence and automated processing mechanisms, which at the border, you know, could be useful in many contexts, but at the border and in uh, public safety contexts are often very problematic. I'm just going to very briefly uh, mention uh, two reports put out by our colleagues at the Citizen, Citizen Lab uh, that look at the context of uh, public safety and policing, as well as uh, in the context of immigration. Um, uh, and these are, these, you know, those issues are comprehensively uh, assessed there. But I think that facial recognition is a subset of, it raises a lot of those same issues because it is an artificial intelligence technology and has the same transparency and, and uh, uh, bias kind of cha bias challenges. Um, but also it's a vehicle to these other technologies. And we just don't have a framework in place to really make sure that um, this, what, what, what is really looking like a rapid transformation in many other jurisdictions is done in a way that's proportionate and transparent. Okay, so uh, a law that's not fit for purpose, no specific law that's on 
point and a real failure in, in many ways to keep pace with how quickly the technology is moving. Uh, why don't we wrap up with this question? Um, given that that's where the legal framework is today, what would you like to see happen? What do you think we need from a legal regulatory perspective to ensure that we've got some of the kind of safeguards in place, given that we know that this technology is very likely to advance? So, uh, and looking at this, I, uh, in this report, I, um, I think I've joined uh, what others have called for, like the Digital Justice Lab. I know, and you, I know you had Nesma on here after they issued their call with uh, Taylor Owen and Ed McGill. Uh, also, groups like Open Media and CCLA have called for a moratorium in various contexts uh, of uh, adoption of this technology. And I think a moratorium on adopting new technologies at the airport for now is, at the border for now, is, a, is an important starting point and a reassessment of the ones that are already there in light of some of the um, you know, the racial biases and transparency challenges that have been flagged is probably is, is kind of the initial starting point where I, I think uh, we should be um, starting at. Um, and then um, I think I think a, at a more gener at a more specific level, if we're going to be dealing with facial recognition uh, moving forward, um, a framework for ensuring that these technologies are adopted in ways that are proportionate and transparent would uh, require specific legislation for different instances. Um, would maybe uh, you know, entrust the privacy commissioner with a more substantive oversight role over the proportionality-specific implementations, but also maybe like a veto over um, some repurposing and shifts in the techno technology. So. Um, you often get not all facial recognitions are the same in their invasive capacity. Some are able to, you know, identify anyone anywhere from a distance, uh, whereas some require, you know, a passport and a face to compare the two, right? So um, requiring some oversight over when a shift from one of these systems to another uh, takes place would be a, a really useful thing to have because the second, you know, the, the identification capability, the identification at a distance capability is much more potentially invasive if it gets repurposed than, you know, the passport comparing capabilities. So I think that type of um that type of, uh, of oversight uh, would be helpful. We've seen laws in um, Australia and Europe where they, where, you know, where the specific type of matching technology that can be used is specified in the law, for example. And I think like that's something that might be worth looking at. Um, in Europe, you have um, specific. Um, thresholds for accuracy that are built into the requirement. And in the U.S., these thresholds are put into place through um, through uh, just general oversight mechanisms like the, I think the Auditor General or the uh, Office of the, um, uh, one of the uh, independent oversight bodies has in, in, installed these uh, thre accuracy threshold requirements and border control systems. So I think we need a, a more robust framework for imposing those types of conditions in a binding way. Um, and and uh, and just a general, uh, maybe a general overarching law that says, you know, uh, without specific lawful authorization, uh, you can't adopt these systems ad hoc at the border. Uh, it's a good it's a good framework to have in place before we move on beyond a moratorium. A big <laughs> list of potential reforms to be sure, uh, but I think that it highlights just how far we need to go in a sense to catch up with where the technology is and where it seems likely to go. Uh, Tamir. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Law Bites Pod or Michael Geist at M Geist. 
You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Mm-hmm.